following lecture was produced by the Gnostic Academy of Chicago, a nonprofit organization, and is one of many available for podcast, download, and transcription. You can visit chicagonosis.org to find courses, articles, scriptures, commentaries, and other valuable resources that address a wide variety of spiritual subjects, interests, and needs. Through the generous support of listeners like you, the Gnostic Academy of Chicago has produced online courses, lectures, and articles freely available worldwide. If you have benefited from this knowledge, help humanity through making a tax-deductible donation at chicagonosis.org. If you are interested in attending the Gnostic Academy of Chicago in person, you may view our online class schedule and freely register at meetup.com slash chicagonosis. The Chicagoland Gnostic Academy provides humanity with the necessary means for transforming suffering and acquiring personal knowledge of the divine. With this purpose in mind, we now begin the lecture. May all beings be happy. The title of this lecture is The Multiplicity of Self. And truly today, we're going to be talking about courage. Because to seek true and profound self-knowledge, to face the complicated and frightening multiplicity within our own psyche requires tremendous courage. In this image, we see the Greek hero Perseus, holding the severed head of the Medusa, the Gorgon, the monster. And on the Medusa's head, her hair was turned into hundreds of little serpents, representing, psychologically speaking, the multiplicity within our own psyche terrifying. Medusa had the power to turn anyone who looked at her to stone, to petrify them, to make them unable to change, to grow, to kill them. And it could be frightening to see things within ourselves that terrify us, things that we would prefer to ignore to pretend are not within ourselves. But as we seek on the Gnostic path to reach our highest potential, we must become heroes like Perseus. Not necessarily heroes in the outside world, braving all kinds of terrors or tremendous difficulties, but first, heroes within ourselves, to plunge into the depths of ourselves, to not be frightened of facing the reality of our situation, psychologically speaking. When we think about our spiritual situation, we can imagine a scenario like this. Imagine that you are in a dark jungle, so black that you cannot see anything. And perhaps you hear frightening noises around you. But because you cannot see, because you do not know where you are, because you have amnesia and have forgotten who you are or how you arrived in this state. You begin to dream, feeling helpless and feeling terrified. You begin to fantasize. Perhaps imagine that you are somewhere safe. Imagine an identity for yourself, one that is strong or glorious. Imagine a life that is very happy. And although all the while, while you're dreaming this dream, in reality you are sitting in the dark jungle with any terror that could come up and devour you in any moment, you cling to your dreams and to your fantasies as the reality because it would be too terrifying to look at the truth of your situation to feel helpless, 
to have no idea how to get out of the jungle, to have no idea who you truly are or how you arrived in this state. And so this is a metaphor for our spiritual situation. Spiritually speaking, we know very little of our true self. We know very little of how we arrived in this current situation that we are in or where we are going. And perhaps, spiritually speaking, we're not going anywhere. If we are blind, if we've lost our connection to our inner divinity, how do we find our way out? And that's why we need the courage to open our eyes, to pray, to seek answers, to be guided by our inner divinity. Out of our current situation, we must first see our reality our spiritual reality. There's a quote by Gurdjieff. I'm going to read for you. He says, Man's possibilities are very great. You cannot even conceive a shadow of what man is capable of attaining, but nothing can be attained in sleep. In the consciousness of a sleeping man, his illusions, his dreams... Are mixed with reality. He lives in a subjective world and he can never escape from it. And this is the reason why he can never make use of all the powers he possesses and why he lives in only a small part of himself. We are asleep. We go about our days in a subjective world. Subjective meaning it does not have an objective truth, but rather is a production of our own perspective. And as we've talked about in the previous lectures of this course, our perspective can be very flawed at times. Let's say, for example, that you are at a work meeting and your boss seems grumpy and makes a comment to you. and You feel very certain that your boss is angry at you. So you spend the rest of your day avoiding your boss, hiding from him, or if you have to talk to him, trying to be very careful to make him like you, to make him think that you're doing a great job. And let's say that the next day you hear from a coworker that truly your boss was angry because some other misfortune happened. He recently lost a relative. Someone he cared about died. And so you had spent the entire day in a fantasy, in a dream, terrified or stressed out, doing all these actions to avoid your boss, to avoid that anger that you believed was there, when all the while it was a fantasy in your own head, a misperception of reality. In this example, we can see many times in many ways in our lives but sometimes our dreams, which are mixed with our reality because of our subjective state of perception, can have a more positive slant to them. Perhaps you are trying to be friends with a new group of people. And every time you're around them, you think that they like you, you're making all these great jokes, and you are, in your own mind, really impressing these people. And then later on, you find out from one of them that the whole time they were very annoyed with you, that they were making fun of you behind your back. And what kind of pain does that cause for us? When we have dreamed and believed that reality is a certain way, when the facts are actually otherwise. And that's why, as painful as it may be to break through the defense mechanism of our fantasy and to see our blind and helpless spiritual state. It is essential, it is crucial that we begin to work towards that. Because when we awaken, as Gurdjieff says, our possibilities are very great. If we saw reality as it truly was, and if we knew ourselves as we truly are, if we became aware of the wealth that is sleeping inside of us, inside of our consciousness, and we activated that, we would not even be able to conceive currently a shadow of what we would be capable of attaining. And as Gurdjieff says, 
Because we are asleep, we can never make use of all the powers we truly possess in our soul. We live only in a small part of ourselves. So we have to ask ourselves, if we're so asleep all the time, and we're going about our day according to fantasies or misperceptions of reality that we believe to be true, but that really have very little to do with our actual situation. What kind of willpower do we have? This is a great philosophical debate. Do we have free will, or is everything predetermined? Is everything destined to happen a certain way? Or do we have a choice in things? Gurdjieff often talked of man as a machine, saying that the sleeping man, the man who is like all of us in our sleeping conscious state, is like a machine. That someone pushes the right button and you react without any freedom, without any control to change your reaction. Perhaps a sibling or an enemy taunts you in a certain way, criticizes a defect that you're very sensitive about, and you react instantaneously with anger or with embarrassment, and you have no conscious control over that. But even greater is our situation that many larger external forces, economic pressures, um, politics, our jobs, education, all kinds of external situations become the larger mechanism within which we are trapped without the freedom to do anything more than react to our external circumstances. And so Gurdjieff describes this state talking about our lack of will, true free will. He says, will is a sign of a being of a very high order of existence as compared with the being of an ordinary man. Only men who are in possession of such a being can do. And by do, Gurdjieff means have a true independent action, an action that is of our own will and not merely reactionary to other forces and pressures. Gurdjieff continues, all other men are merely automata, put into action by external forces like machines or clockwork toys, acting as much and as long as the wound-up spring within them acts, and not capable of adding anything to its force. So as I mentioned, these external forces can be pressures in our world, can be the people in our lives, can be our worldly situation. But further than that, we also have many forces that move us from within our own psyche over which we have no control. We can think of our psychological state as a multiplicity. A very basic and perhaps silly example is how many of us wish that we could be healthier and that we could be in shape. And we think that we will have a healthier diet. And so we begin to maybe starve ourselves. We're only gonna eat celery sticks, just a celery stick fast. And a couple hours later, or maybe if we have a lot of willpower, a few days later, we suddenly become starving. We see a chocolate cake or some really delicious food that is our favorite food, and we begin to gorge ourselves on that. And so while in one moment we had the will, the desire, the sense of self that wanted to be skinnier or healthier. In the next moment, we are possessed by a sense of self that is gluttonous, that desires the sensations of those um, tastes, those foods. And so which one is really us? Are we the self that wants to be healthy? Or are we the self that wants to enjoy life and eat delicious foods? Are we the self that wants to go work out at the gym and become stronger? Or are we the self that likes to relax on the couch and watch TV all day? If we see both of those desires within ourselves pulling us, one moment is one, 
The next moment it is the opposite. The next moment it is some other drive. How do we know who is our true self from moment to moment? And as we slumber and shift ever between these states, between these different urges, we have the illusion of continuity. We have the illusion that there is one self always present there. When in reality, one moment we are so hungry and we're trying to get up so that we can go to the kitchen and prepare ourselves some food. But then in the next moment, we're too tired and we just want to continue to lay in bed and not do anything. So which one is the true self? How do we know what is our true will? The founder of the Gnostic movement, Samael and Veor, wrote about this state of our existence. He said, Many thousands of different individuals, different persons, eyes, or people who quarrel amongst themselves, who fight amongst themselves for supremacy, and who do not have order or concordance whatsoever, exist within each one of us. So that is like the examples that I was just giving. There is I who is hungry. There is I who wants to go on a diet. There is I who is tired. There is I who wants to exercise. There are all these different identities within ourselves, but they don't have an order. They don't have a structure or a concordance with one another. They are chaotic. They are constantly battling for control of our human machine, our mind, our heart, our body. So it becomes very hard for us to move in a defined direction, to have a true individual continuous will because we are constantly being divided by many, many, many wills within ourselves. Samuel and Veor continued, If we were conscious, if we were to awaken from so many dreams and fantasies, how different life would be. So as Gurdjieff was talking about, our dreams are mixed with reality, and because our consciousness is asleep, we believe that we are perceiving reality. Let's say that you have a dream. You're asleep at night and you're dreaming that you're being pursued by a huge, ferocious tiger. And in this dream, you are seeking to escape. You are running. You are looking for a tree that you can climb to get away from this tiger. But in the next instant, you wake up and you realize you're safe in your bed. And the entire time, it was a dream. Well, what about that example from earlier about your boss being mad at you? And you're running and you're running away from your boss. But then the next day when you find out the truth that your boss isn't mad at you, you wake up in your bed and you realize the whole thing was a dream. You were so frightened. You were so worried. But here you are, just fine. There's no threat. If we were conscious, if we perceived what in us is a dream, our life would be very different. Because in reality, there are true threats to our spiritual development, true threats that can cause us to become petrified, turned to stone, and unable to grow and develop spiritually. But we cannot perceive them as long as we are living a fantasy. Samuel and Vior said, nonetheless, as if our misfortune was not enough, negative emotions, self-love and self-esteem fascinate us, hypnotize us, never allowing us to remember ourselves, to see ourselves exactly the way we are. We have a skewed perception. We've talked about it in previous lectures that we become very egotistical, very egocentric, possessed by our self-esteem, our self-love, our sense of anger, our sense of pride, our lust, our greed, our vanity. And because of that, we are pulled all the time, as if by our own psychological strings. We do not have control over ourselves. We may swear in one moment that we love someone, we love our spouse. And in the next moment, our spouse does something to make us angry and we hate them, and we become cold towards them, we begin to push them away or to treat them cruelly. We have no power there. 
to continue to love our spouse? Which one is the true self, the love or the anger? And so that is why we have a tragic situation. We cannot remember ourselves. We cannot see ourselves as we truly are. Because in each moment, we are possessed by negative emotions that separate us from the true and innate happiness of the consciousness. We need an individual will. We need the will of our inner divinity, our true will, not the will of these temporary and transient egotistical desires. But so long as we believe that we already have an individual will, we cannot access and become aware of the will of our inner divinity, the will that speaks and expresses itself to us through our conscience, which many of us have silenced through years of ignorance. And Samuel Anvior also talks about this situation. He says, We believe that we have one will, when in reality we possess many different wills. Each I has its own will. The tragic comedy of all this, interior multiplicity, is dreadful. The different internal wills clash against each other. They live in continuous conflict, and they act in different directions. If we had true individuality, if we were a unity instead of a multiplicity, then we would also have a continuity of purpose, awakened consciousness, a particular individual will. We know of situations where perhaps we or someone else has worked for years to attain a certain job. They spent lots of money, they spent years studying or getting education, getting training. They worked very hard to fit the role of this job that they sought. And finally, perhaps they're successful and they get this career. And then a few months or a few years later, they're unhappy. They realize this isn't what they want to be doing. They want to be doing something else. And that's an example of this tragic comedy that it is ridiculous and absurd how we are pulled so strongly in one direction only to realize that that was a false self, a false desire. We thought having this certain job would make us happy only to realize tragically that we are still unhappy, that that was not actually the happiness that we were seeking. We think that when we have a nicer car than our neighbor who we envy, that then we will be happy. We get the car, and then our other neighbor gets a nicer car than us, and we're miserable. Our pride is wounded. Our envy is inflamed. And so we see that in all these dreams and fantasies that we chase in the external world, we never truly find the contentment that we are seeking, and in fact, often only cause ourselves more suffering. But if we awoke our consciousness, our inner connection to divinity, and we followed the will of our inner divinity, then we would have true purpose, true volition, and true happiness that cannot be taken away no matter what our external situation may be. We're going to do an exercise because it's very important that we become aware of this within ourselves. I've been giving many different examples of that multiplicity, and perhaps some of them might resonate. But to truly psychologically observe this within ourselves is very important because we need to, first of all, have the courage to face ourselves and to face our psychological situation, and furthermore, use that courage and use that sincerity with ourselves as a weapon to gain more and more self-knowledge. As Gurdjieff says in the following quote, Try to understand what you usually call I is not I. There are many I's, and each I has a different wish. Try to verify this. You wish to change, but which part of you has this wish? Many parts of you want many things, but only one part is real. It will be very useful for you to try to be sincere with yourself. 
Sincerity is the key which will open the door through which you will see your separate parts, and you will see something quite new. You must go on trying to be sincere. Each day you put on a mask, and you must take it off little by little. What we want is to see directly in our own experience of life what is new, to comprehend things in ourselves that we have previously been blind to. We have many fantasies about ourselves, fantasies about our life, fantasies about other people in the world that we cling to, that we repeat. We think the same thoughts, we feel the same emotions, we have the same habits day after day after day. But when we awaken consciousness, we begin to perceive ourselves and reality in a new way. And that requires a lot of courage and a lot of sincerity. So in this exercise, we're going to use a technique of meditative self-observation that we learned about in previous lectures. It's going to be a little bit challenging and uncomfortable, but using our willpower, we're going to set this task for ourselves to be truly sincere and to see within ourselves something new. So go ahead and close your eyes. And for a few minutes, we will enter into a meditative state. First, we will become aware of our physical center, the sexual motor instinctive brain. Becoming aware of our physical body, relaxing and breathing deeply. Noticing any physical sensations in our body. Becoming aware of that, becoming conscious. Concentrating. Awake, alert, but relaxed. Next, we will become aware of our emotional state. Becoming aware of how we feel in this moment. Whether it is positive, negative, or neutral. Not judging it, just becoming aware. And then moving into our intellectual center, becoming aware of our thoughts. Becoming aware of any thoughts that are passing through our mind. Not trying to change them, but just noticing them. Breathing deeply, relaxing with each inhalation and letting out any stress with each exhalation. Beginning to enter into a relaxed and concentrated state, maintaining the alertness and the concentration of our consciousness. And now we set a wish for ourselves using our willpower to recall one of the most painful moments of our lives. And as this memory comes into our concentration, we become aware of our heart, our emotions, become aware of our body, our physical reactions, become aware of our mind and our thoughts. And you may notice as you try to focus on something that is uncomfortable and painful, try to look at a painful corner of yourself, that there are many other wills that arise, that resist it, that dislike it, that try to pull your concentration away. Because we do not like to look at ourselves, to face our suffering, but this is necessary. Begin to take a deep breath, to relax again, to let the memory go. And to come back to this moment. So hopefully in that exercise you observe something within yourself, a division of wills, that when you set an intention to truly look at yourself, other wills arose 
that do not want to look, that were afraid, that were angry, that were hurt, that wanted to distract themselves or avoid facing reality. But as Gurdjieff says, sincerity is the key with which we will open the door through which we will see our separate parts and see something quite new. We cannot be afraid of ourselves, even the most painful things that we carry within us. We must be sincere each day because our sincerity, our willpower, our courage is the key to overcoming the multiplicity within ourselves. I'm going to talk in the second part of this lecture now about different scriptural examples that encode this psychological teaching for us. But we can see that this esoteric teaching has been present in traditions around the world for many hundreds of years or thousands of years. In the Bible, there is a story of a madman who wandered around the tombs. And if we look at this as a metaphor for our own situation, with all of our fantasies, with all of our ideas about ourselves and our delusions about our lives, we are the madman who is wandering around the tombs because spiritually we are dead. Spiritually we do not have life. And in the Bible, in the book of Mark, we see here that Jesus went to this madman who is possessed by many demons. And the madman said to Jesus, What have I to do with thee, Jesus, thou Son of the Most High God? When our conscience speaks to us, when our inner divinity comes to us to show us the reality of our situation, to guide us, to show us what is right, what is wrong, what we must do to awaken, to overcome ourselves. Do we accept that guidance? Or do we turn back to our delusions and say to God, what have I to do with thee? What have I to do with my own inner spirit? If all of my time is invested in my worldly fantasies, in my idea of myself, my pride, my selfishness, my gluttony, my lust, my greed, my envy? What have I to do with God or with the Christ if that is my choice to live in a fantasy and to avoid my spiritual reality? But Jesus, representing here the cosmic Christ, the force of universal compassion and wisdom, says to the man, before he heals him. Jesus asked him, what is your name? And the man replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. The many that exist within this man, this madman who lives amongst the tombs, who represents us, is a multiplicity of false wills, sometimes demonic wills, animal wills, selfish, egotistical wills that have in their intention to harm others for our own benefit. They are false wills. They are a sense of self that we believe in a given moment is true, is who I am. That in this moment, because I feel angry, this is my true will. And I will hurt the ones I love to avenge my anger when a little while later, we feel remorse. We realize that we were controlled in those moments by the demon of our anger and that it was not truly the will of our soul. But now, having hurt the ones we love, we must live with the consequences of having been possessed by a false I, a false self. But as we see in this 
chapter of the Bible, Jesus has the power to heal this man of his demons. And he casts them out and casts them into pigs, which run into the waters and are drowned. This is a deep esoteric symbol. We can simply say that when we turn to our own inner divinity, our own connection with the force of universal love and compassion, with the Christ, and we ask to be healed, that we can overcome the multiplicity of ourselves. But that takes a sincerity of realizing that as we currently are, we are possessed by many demonic wills. And we lack true individuality. Gurdjieff has another quote that has to do with breaking through this mechanicity, this defense mechanism, this multiplicity. He writes, All religions speak about death during this life on earth. Death must come before rebirth. But what must die? False confidence in one's own knowledge, self-love, and egoism. Our egoism must be broken. That egoism that I was just describing, a sense of self that has nothing to do with divinity, that has nothing to do with our spirit or our soul, that is false, that is multiple, that is divided, that believes that our anger is real, that our lust is real, that our envy is real, that our pride is real, and will even fight to the death to defend a sense of self that has no permanence, that has no continuity, that is here one moment and gone the next. This egoism must be broken and can be broken by our sincerity and by working with the force of Christ. Gurdjieff continues, we must realize that we are very complicated machines, and so this process of breaking is bound to be a long and difficult task. Before real growth becomes possible, our personality must die. If we want the growth of the soul, we have to invest energy into our soul. And if all of our energy is poured into a thousand different directions that have nothing to do with the growth of our soul, we will remain stagnant. We will remain fueling a false identity, a false personality. In order for our soul to be born again, for us to be reborn, our false self must die. This is something we've touched on in the previous lectures, which ties into this topic today as well. There's another example from the Hindu tradition. In the scripture of the Bhagavad Gita, Krishna, who is a representation of Christ, the Hindu Christ, comes to the battlefield to help the hero of the story, Arjuna. Arjuna is a representation of our own human soul, the true willpower of our soul. And in this battle, Arjuna asked Krishna to pull his chariot in between the two armies, the army with whom he fights and the army whom he fights against. And he looks on both sides of the battlefield and he sees on both sides people who were once or currently are his friends, his relatives, his children, his grandparents, his brother-in-laws. He sees his beloved friends and relatives, and he loses heart. He loses courage. He loses his strength. And he says to Krishna, I cannot fight. It would be better for me to die than to kill these people whom I love. How can you ask me to fight this warrior, this war? Now, this is a psychological symbol for our situation. That as we look on our spiritual battlefield, at the army against whom we fight, the legion within our psychology, we see many beloved friends and relatives, psychologically speaking, that we are very attached to our pride, that we are very attached to our gluttony, our greed, our envy, our lust, 
our desires for the future, our desires for fame or for wealth or for a certain partner, certain security, that we are so attached to them that we say, I don't want to fight the spiritual battle. I want to continue on with the flow, even if it costs me the death of my soul. I don't have the strength to fight. But what does our inner Christ say? In this beautiful scripture, Krishna gives Arjuna the teaching of Atman, the true spirit, the inner self that is not attached to fame or to disgrace, to gain or to loss, is not attached to heat or cold, to happiness or sadness. The spirit that has eternal wisdom and love and a contentment that is beyond temporary pleasures of the world. And through this teaching, Arjuna gains direct knowledge of non-attachment and gains the strength and the courage to go to battle against his enemies, which, as I stated earlier, psychologically speaking, are elements within ourselves that we are too attached to, that we believe are our cherished darlings, are our family, are our loved ones, but that ultimately come to steal from us the kingdom, the kingdom of our soul, our spiritual inheritance. They come to take away our lifetime, to take away our energy and our willpower so that we cannot fight for our soul, for our spiritual development, and fight according to the will of our inner God. And finally, we'll return to the Greek mysteries, the myth that we began with, the myth of Perseus and Medusa. So the Medusa, Gorgon, was once a very beautiful woman, so beautiful that she became very vain and proud and egotistical, and as a result incurred the wrath of a goddess and was turned into a hideous monster with hair full of serpents. And these many serpents represent the same symbol as the poisonous serpents in the desert that bit the Israelites, the many different desires within ourselves that bite us, that poison us, that cause us spiritually to become weak and to die because they divide us from our true self, from our true inner divinity. And so, in order to protect the virtue of his mother from a lustful king, Perseus goes and fights to bring back the head of the Medusa. Medusa, with her stare, petrifies anyone who looks upon her. And many warriors have gone to fight her, and in looking upon her horrible, terrifying face, have been turned to stone and have perished. Spiritually speaking, when we look at ourselves, we must not get identified. We must not get attached We must look at ourselves with serenity, with courage. Look at ourselves from the perspective of our inner divinity who is not attached to any outcome but can see reality as it truly is. So in order for Perseus to defeat Medusa, he is given by Athena a polished shield, a shield which allows him to see the reflection of Medusa and to kill her without looking directly upon her. And symbolically, this represents our need to enter into a meditative state in which we are not identified, but can reflect on ourselves from a higher perspective, can destroy our enemy. Because when we sit to meditate, we can separate from the egotistical desires and enter into communion with our inner divinity, which gives us strength to see reality. But as stated in the earlier example, when we are fused with a given desire, when in that moment we become so identified with our anger that we do horrible things, say horrible things to the ones that we love, then we are defeated. We are spiritually killed by our inner enemy. And that's why we need that separation, the polished shield of our own self-reflection. Now to cut off the head of the Gorgon, Perseus was given an adamantine sword by Zeus, 
Zeus, who was his father. Because Perseus, like us, is half God, half mortal. Within us, we have our soul, our essence, the seed of a soul, which is given to us by the spirit. Our spiritual identity, our inner divinity. But also within us, we have many mortal elements given to us by Mother, Mother Nature. A physical body and internal bodies and vehicles that were given to us by nature. And so we must work with the sword of willpower, which represents the willpower given to us by our inner spirit, our, of our spiritual nature, to cut off the head of the beast, our psychological enemies. Now after Perseus kills Medusa, he must put on the helm of Hades. Hades is the king, the lord of the underworld. And this helm of darkness allows Perseus to hide from the other enemies that come, the other gorgons that come to destroy him when they find out that he has killed their sister. This represents the facing ourselves and cutting off the head of Medusa is just the beginning of our battle. But what we have to use to protect ourselves for the further battles after that is the helm of darkness. Because when we have faced the darkness within ourselves, we receive the gift of Hades, the gift of the Lord of the underworld, and that now we can protect ourselves because we know when we have faced the worst in ourselves. And so we have the courage and the ability to fight and conquer other forms of evil. So to summarize everything that we've talked about here, we can look at what these symbols represent. When we are first courageous enough to admit that we have a multiplicity of wills and that we do not know our true individual will, the will of our inner God, when we become serious about our spiritual work and developing our soul, rather than chasing after many false fantasies and false desires that change moment by moment and at the end of our life have brought us nothing. We instead face ourselves and we become serious about wanting to develop our soul. We can use a method for self-transformation that just as Perseus used the shield, we must have non-identified self-observation. And this comes from self-observing ourselves throughout the day, as we talked about in the previous lectures, but also through meditation, through developing our connection with our inner divinity that can strengthen us to see what is our true self. Because when we know our true self, we are not so easily fooled by the multiplicity of false selves within our psyche. And at the end of each day, we retrospect we perform a meditation in which we observe which elements were active throughout our day. So we can begin at the beginning of our day and replay it in our mind with non-identification, or we can start at the end of our day just before we start to meditate and replay the day backwards. But either way, observing how many multiple wills pulled us in different directions, how from one moment to the next our will was not continuous, and analyzing from a non-identified position, what is the truth of those desires? If I pursue this anger, if I go and I take my vengeance and act on this anger, what will the outcome be? Will it bring me happiness? Will it bring me peace? In the long run, will it develop my soul? Or is it just an illusion? Is it a false desire, a false self that I must separate from? Same is true with pride, with envy, with lust, gluttony, laziness. If we act on these defects, what will the outcome be? Will the outcome be spiritual growth? Will it be self-knowledge and wisdom, universal compassion? Will the outcome be that 
true happiness of the soul? Or will those only bring us temporary pleasures that when we reach the end of life will be lost? And for that type of meditation, we need sincerity. We need to be very sincere with ourselves and not allow our self-deception to fool us into wasting much time and energy chasing after fantasies, delusions that won't get us anywhere. And all of this work takes tremendous willpower. And for that willpower, we need to conserve our energy, to be living ethically, to be honest with ourselves, to be honest with others, to be living in an upright way, to be acting according to what we know in our conscience to be right. And through those ethics, we can conserve enough energy to have the willpower to observe ourselves day after day, to meditate and to truly seek the awakening of our consciousness. And finally, it's very important that we use prayer because this self-transformation is a tremendous feat. It's very difficult. It is symbolized by the heroes of the Greek myths and the heroes of the scriptures because it requires a tremendous amount of willpower. A heroism that we must find in our own soul and develop. But always these heroes have the help and the guidance of the gods and of divinity. And that is why through prayer we can gain that inner help, that inner guidance to show us what is the truth, what is the reality of our situation, and what is the will of our inner God. Do you have any questions? When Gurdjieff says, what is man capable of? What is he capable of? If we're going to do this work in eliminating ego, what happens for us? Many people wonder, who would I be if I didn't have all these desires? What would I do? Would I just be nothing? But when we look at great spiritual masters like Jesus, like Buddha, like Krishna. These are truly great solar identities, solar beings, profound, powerful. That if we took an ordinary person and put them in a situation where they were all by themselves, this person would be helpless, would not have the ability in that jungle, like our earlier example, to find their way out or to survive. But if we took a master like Jesus, who has power over nature, power over himself, truly channels the power of divinity, his potential is limitless on earth and in the higher dimensions of nature. And so that's the ultimate goal that we seek. Whatever level we might reach, we seek to develop our spiritual potential to have power over ourselves first and over nature and even spiritual power. So Gurdjieff talks a lot about genuine will. What would be an example of having genuine willpower according to divinity? We can think about the example of Jesus of Nazareth in the Garden of Gethsemane. Sure. I mean, what does he say as he prays to God? And this is before his crucifixion. And he knows he's going to die. And he prays to God, Father, if it be thy will, take this cup of bitterness away from me. But not my will, but thine be done. As an example of willpower, it is submission to divine will. That where our spirit guides us, that we have the will of our inner God to do whatever is necessary. And that we are not controlled by fear or by any egotistical desire, but rather we have true strength, continuity of purpose. We are awakened. We know what we must do. And we have the will and the power to do it. So what does it mean to be conscious? Because this is a very difficult thing for students and for ourselves, is learning to understand what it means to be awake. 
So when we're awake, how do we really know? So I know it sounds like a kind of like a catch twenty two, but what are the signs of being conscious in this work? Well, in that example or in that exercise where we were meditating, were you aware of your feelings? Were you aware of your physical body sitting in the chair? Were you aware of your thoughts? That simple awareness of physical sensations or emotional sensations or mental sensations is an example, is a taste of becoming conscious. That actually throughout the day as we're walking around, we're often not even aware of our physical body. We're not aware of breath coming in and out of our body. And so on the most basic level to be aware of your physical processes becomes the first level of being conscious. And then as we become aware of our more profound psychological depths, our thoughts or emotions that were previously unconscious to us as we work more and more in meditation, then we are awakening more and more. We might even perceive things that are extrasensory, you know, develop spiritual senses to be like telepathy, clairvoyance, clairaudience, to be awakened when we are asleep at night, to be awakened in the astral plane. These are examples of awakening, but it happens degree by degree. So what does it mean to be asleep and hypnotized? Because I know we talk a lot about different identities and wills. How is it that the, our sense of self makes us dream or makes us unaware of ourselves or unaware of things? Mm-hmm. Well, I think I gave an example too of being, you know, having a misperception of a situation with our boss, right? right. Where we believe that our boss is angry. And so we go about our day acting according to that belief. Now, the reality is that our boss isn't angry at us, was having a bad day because of some other situation that we didn't know. Mm. But in this state, this subjective reality, this subjective world of our own psychological perspective, we believe it to be true. And so we are going about acting as though that is the reality when the reality is otherwise. And that's because we are asleep, because we think we are perceiving reality. But truly, we are filtering reality through our own egotism, our own fear that our boss would be angry at us, for example. Right. And it's just like the dream with the tiger chasing us. That when we are asleep and we're having a dream that a big tiger is after us, we believe it's true and we're running like mad and we're trying to find a tree, we're trying to escape, right? right. And we wake up and we realize that that was not reality, Right. So that's an example of what it is to be asleep. And, you know, there are many desires that we are chasing that we believe are very real. That desire for that new car, that desire for that new partner, that desire for that new uh, job. And as we chase them, we believe they are real. But perhaps a few months later, some other job comes up and you get that job instead. And so all that time that you invested thinking that, oh, in a year from now I'm going to have this job, was wasted because the reality ended up being different. The truth is that life never goes according to our plans. Yeah, and I say you know, certain egos that come up in such situations such as insecurity or fear or uncertainty or doubt, despair, and becoming hypnotized by those thoughts is what keeps us asleep. So why do we have a multiplicity in us. Why is it that we have ended up the way we are? So because we, in past actions, both in this lifetime and in previous lifetimes, invested our energy into desires that had nothing to do with our inner divinity, we created a flow of energy that goes into multiple different directions. So let's say that, you know, in, in the past, in a past life when we had a stronger connection with our inner divinity, we were guided to perform one action. But because of some egotistical desire or fantasy, because of our pride, for example, we didn't want to do this action that would have humiliated us. So we chose to act in a prideful way. Well, in that case, psychologically speaking, we strengthened our sense of pride. We strengthen that false self. 
And we did this many times, many different actions, many different directions, created a multiplicity of wills with our own energy, our own consciousness, our own conscious energy. And so in this lifetime, we carry the psychological consequences, the psychological bodies from those previous existences, existences that have a multiplicity of wills. But because we have become so hypnotized and so asleep, like I said, spiritually speaking, we have amnesia. We have no idea how we got here. We don't even remember what we did yesterday or two weeks ago, let alone what we did in past lives. And so our situation is very confused and very asleep. But as we work with meditation and as we perform this profound psychological self-transformation and awaken ourselves and begin to perceive the depths of our psyche, we can become aware and awakened and remember our past lives and see for ourselves directly through our own experiences, our own mystical experiences, the reality of our past lives and how we ended up in this situation now. So when we get rid of the ego, we develop the soul. How is it that by eliminating the ego, we develop our consciousness? How is our consciousness trapped in in the ego, right? Can you tell me a little more about, or tell us a little bit more about what that process is like? I'm going to go back to this quote here by Gurdjieff, where he says that death must come before rebirth. And so we know that our egoism must be broken. The ego is all of those different eyes. So we can say actually that we have a legion of egos. Ego means I in Latin. Now, because we have our own psychology divided into these false senses of selves, false senses of self, um, our energy and our attention and our awareness is divided in many different directions so that we can't, we can't uh, progress through life with a continuous direction and a sense of will. We can't work towards one aim because one minute we want to go on the diet and become skinnier and the next minute we're turned in another direction and we're eating that chocolate cake, right? right. But this is actually a, a much bigger problem for us when we perform meditation every day and we see the reality of different egos that pull at us. So as we meditate and we begin to take our energy back, we begin to extract our consciousness from these false delusional selves, these delusional desires, and we bring our consciousness back into a central center of gravity. And we center ourselves again in our spirit, in our soul, in our conscience and our connection to divine will within ourselves, our true individual will. Then we can begin to die to the delusion and to be born to the reality of the soul and see the spiritual realities that are, that are much more profound than the false realities that we perceive now and that we believe to be true. But so long as we believe the lie, well, then we cannot perceive the truth. So we must first perceive that the egos or the different eyes that manipulate us moment to moment are false and then die to them, let them go as Arjuna kill these beloved attachments that we have because they are temporary, because they are false. Then all of that energy, that consciousness, that awareness returns to our spirit, to our soul. And so we can be born as a soul. Can an ego observe another ego? How does that work? I believe Samang Vera talks a lot about that process. Well, some people develop an egotistical sense of self that is doing this work. You know, maybe a Gnostic I sure. that sits and judges and condemns the other eyes and says this one's bad and this one's not good. But eventually that person has to become aware that that Gnostic I is also a false self. When we're sitting in a state of conscious meditation, free from conditioning, we see and perceive the reality directly. We, we gain comprehension that is not intellectual. When one is sitting at the beginning, perhaps our analysis is a little bit intellectual because we start where we're at. And so we have to maybe begin just by intellectually pondering, well, was that desire to yell at my friend 
good or bad or you know where is that going to take me if I continue to act on that desire perhaps in the beginning it is intellectual but as we strengthen our connection with divinity and as we strengthen our consciousness through this work and awaken then we have comprehension of ourselves we perceive reality directly we know the truth and so we do not have to analyze in this egotistical way or this intellectual way but merely sit to meditate observe what we see and we will know through direct spontaneous insight perhaps not in that moment of meditation perhaps later but as as long as we're doing this work and we're making efforts our inner divinity will guide us and will show us the truth and it's very uh, inspired and doesn't require exertion but comes naturally as a result of the effort to observe ourselves and to meditate To learn more about the knowledge covered in this lecture, we invite you to study the books available through Glorian Publishing or GnosticTeachings.org. You can also view free online courses, lectures, transcriptions, and articles available at ChicagoGnosis.org. All of this is made possible by the support of listeners like you. Have you benefited from this knowledge? Help others by making a tax-deductible donation at chicagognosis.org. We thank you for listening. We hope that these lectures aid you in developing your complete and divine potential. May all beings be happy. May all beings be joyful. May all beings be in peace.